everyone. I'm here with Eric Bettinger. Eric, welcome to the Ward family. President Bettinger is our stake president, and normally I would refer to him as President Bettinger. For purposes of this interview, I'll just say Eric, Great. Uh, since we're getting to know him a little bit better. And so, Eric, uh, where did life begin for you? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Sure. Well, I was actually born in San Francisco. My dad was attending podiatry school. And so, you know, that building over there that we often uh, meet when we're going on, like, trolley caroling or doing some activities, that's where I was blessed. But uh, parents, you know, he finished school, moved on, and kind of traveled a bit as he was trying to find uh, steady employment. Eventually, my parents were actually divorced, but probably spent a good chunk of my childhood in Las Vegas and then went from Las Vegas to rural Oregon to a suburb of Grants Pass. And if you know Grants Pass, then a suburb's not saying much, so... And what was that like? What what kind of stuff did you enjoy doing as a kid? Or do you have certain memories that you look back on fondly from your childhood? So a lot of my memories are there in Las Vegas. And, you know, you think of Las Vegas and you think Sin City. But, you know, once you get about half a mile away from the, the strip, the, the area there with all the casinos, it is a real family town. It is a, and there is a really, really strong contingent from the church. And it was a great place to grow up and to have great experiences, hot. <laughs> but then when my mom remarried, you know, Harry moved out to this rural area. And and the, there were some real virtues out there. I mean, the first part of it was we lived right on the Rogue River. And so, you know, my employment when I was a kid, I was a kayak guide. I used to go kayaking quite a bit. I haven't done it for 30 years, so please don't uh, come and say, hey, let's jump in the kayaks because I may not be safe. But uh but then the other thing was when you're in a small community, you know, sometimes when I look at how, like, our big high schools here, they're big. And if you really want to excel in something, you really have to choose one or two activities and really, you know, focus and really do get into those very in-depth. And when you're in a small town and a small high school, you can do a little bit of everything. So, you know, I... I was able to do a lot of sports. I was able to do a lot of student government. I was able to do a lot of clubs and other things. And and so it was one of those um, high school careers that was, you know, kind of really fun because I could do a lot of everything. They say a mile wide and an inch deep. Is, but at the same time, it was really a great experience to get into so many things. And as you were growing up, were you born into the church or did you join the church later in life? I was born into the church. My mom uh, is Pioneer Stock. If you know the Tanner family, she's she's a descendant of the Tanner family. Uh, she was a Worthington. You know, she had relatives who came across the plains. My dad is a, kind of a more interesting story. My my grandfather, my great grandfather was uh, both my great grandfathers on that side were uh, Jewish, and they were very uh, faithful. And my grandfather really kind of rebelled. He didn't uh, he didn't like growing up in a conservative Jewish household. And uh, he decided that he, he married uh, somebody who wasn't Jewish. And my dad, as he was trying to kind of make the decisions about and understand uh, who God is and how he should think about God, at that point his dad was out of the picture, but he knew that he had this Jewish heritage. And so he was actually going to synagogue and even preparing to receive his, his uh, bar mitzvah when he met uh, the Mormon missionaries and the missionaries you know, talked to him a little bit and taught him about the church and he ended up deciding that uh, he wanted to be converted. And he did that towards the end of his high school years and then served a mission in Brazil. You grew up in the church 
Um, Did you find that faith and your testimony came easily for you or were there some bumps in the road, you know, kind of along the way? What what did how did that early faith development look like for you? Yeah, I don't know altogether. It's hard to trace out those things because there's their journeys. Right. And you sometimes you see mileposts and sometimes you don't. And but I remember when I was young, I got a blessing that I would be a peacemaker. And that was something that was repeated multiple times as I had, you know, was ordained to different things. Uh, but it always stuck with me, that word peacemaker. And so as conflict would come up in our house, I can't say I was always a peacemaker, but when my mom and my dad uh, divorced, you know, there's a lot of turbulence that comes in that. And there's a lot of angry and hurt feelings. And I remember reminding myself constantly during that whole process that I needed to be a peacemaker. When you're a peacemaker, you know, one of the things that's hard, right, is learning how to forgive other people, uh, learning how to love them, even when they've made mistakes that um, that are injuresome. And so I think that one of the things, though, it also makes you more receptive to uh, some things. You There's a... I, I, being a peacemaker, there's a level of humility that you decide to take and a level of forgiveness. And as you forgive others, you start to understand how hopeful you are that somebody's forgiving you on the other side. So I think that was some of the seeds that were planted that helped me. Did it always come easy? No. Um, I was uh, the, the big football star in our high school, and there was a lot of opportunities to go and hang out with friends and do things. And and I remember having some experiences where I realized, and many of my peers, some of the high school seniors, looked out for me when I was a freshman and helped me understand that, you know, when you start to take steps the wrong direction, you're choosing a destination, even at that early stage. And they said, now, are you happy where this is going to lead? And it was, uh, I had some good experiences that kind of woke me up that I needed to maintain that um, spirituality in my life. And so I think uh, a lot of it culminated when I was a sophomore in high school. I just decided, uh, being thoughtful about this, that if I really wanted to go forward and do it with the energy that I thought needed to be applied to the church, that I really needed to figure out if the church was true. And so I spent a a good chunk of my sophomore year really studying the Book of Mormon uh, for the first time really in depth in my life. And it was a wonderful experience. Um, I wouldn't say that it was like the, you know, Shazam experience where, you know, but it was uh, it was a lot like David O. McKay's experience where you say the prayer and you get back on the horse and can't say you're a very different person, but as you keep on looking back over time and the fruits that that uh, decision have made, they've been positive and reinforced my belief that it was the right decision at the time. After high school, where did you go to college and what did you study? I was the only person in my high school. There was actually like maybe three or four of us, but I mean, I was related to, you know, my two of them were my siblings. And in my whole stake, there was one Laurel. Uh, she went and she had a boyfriend. So there really wasn't anybody to date. And uh, so, I mean, even in high school, I would actually, I was so desperate to date members of the church. I would, I would uh, drive three hours north up to Salem, I'd never let my kids drive three hours to go to a church dance and come home the same night. But I would go up and do that. And and so I was really eager to go to a place where I could meet other members of the church. Whether that was a good decision or not, I don't know. I mean, certainly it's uh, it's been good for me over time. 
but I had options to go to some better places um, that might have pushed me a little bit more academically. But, you know, the Lord takes care of you. And, and as I prayed about it, I felt like that was the right place for me. So I went to BYU and did a year at BYU, and then I, I went on a mission from there. But it was good for me because, you know, one of the things that's hard, I think, sometimes is when you're growing up as the only person who's a member of the church, you often define yourself by, here's the things I don't do. Here's the things that make me distinct individually. And then you go to a place like BYU where, you know, most of the people are doing the same thing. And suddenly that's not what can define you to make you separate. And it, I, I think it's actually a good experience for us at different times in our life to step back and think about, you know, our membership. What is it that makes us distinctive as individuals? And sometimes I think we can lose that identity, or at least that identity gets challenged in some way that then we have to think about what is it that makes me distinctive. And as you start to look into things about your identity and things that make you distinctive, I think the Lord often, there's the truth that's lurking out there that, you know, that you are a child of God that really begins to mean more to you. And that then the kind of relativeness of your standing or of what makes you unique becomes different because you recognize that there is a uniqueness you have. Yes, it's in common with other people, but the the depth and the breadth of it can fill your mind for years to come in terms of what its implications are. And where did you serve your mission? I served in Brazil. It was kind of an interesting thing because I, I mentioned earlier that my uh, dad had served his mission in Brazil. And my dad, during my parents' divorce, really left the church. And it's only been in the recent years that he's I decided to get back together with the church, you know, and so a good 30, 35 year break from the church. But what was interesting, and this is also goes to kind of my testimony that God really cares about the individual. I got called to the same mission as my dad had been. Now, of course, there was like 20 missions in that area that he served. But my first mission president had actually been my dad's district leader when he was at the language training center. Uh, um, and then my mission president, uh, my second mission president, was actually one of my dad's former companions. While I was on my mission, I actually got to teach one of the people who investigated the church and with my, with, uh, that my dad taught the discussions. He was still investing in the church, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever it was. And uh, I ended up uh, getting to teach him. And then, you know, the, after my mission... So there was a bond that was forming there with my dad and, you know, kind of healing some of the some of the things. But then as uh, the, my mission president, when he returned home from his mission, he bought a house and didn't realize he bought a house a block away from my dad. And so my mission president, the second one who had been my dad's companion, ended up being my dad's ministering brother for the next 15, 20 years. And I've always just thought about that, how the Lord could have sent me anywhere, but the Lord sent me somewhere and connected me with some some people that would have a particular resonance with my dad. And as he talks about his journey back, the gratitude that he has and the recognition that the Lord was kind of always calling his voice. And that's been one of the kind of great witnesses, you know, when you read in Alma when he says more than just Alma, I mean, Moroni, when he says the promise at the end of the Book of Mormon, he says, you have to read it. And then he says, after you read it, you have to think about how merciful the Lord has been from the children of Adam until the time you receive it. Not the time that you know somebody else receives it, the time that you receive it. And uh, as I 
think about when I remember, you know, that, or when I remember the captivity of my fathers. I also remember this great line of how the Lord used my experience to give my dad a shout out. Hey, I haven't forgot you. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you. You may not be thinking about me, but I'm thinking about you. And and over time, you know, 35 years later here, he's got a temple recommend. Um, one of my daughters will get married this summer in all likelihood. My dad will be in the ceiling room when she gets uh, uh, married. It's something that he wasn't in the ceiling room for any of my siblings when we got married. But he's been there for some of our grand, his grandchildren at this point. And so after your mission, when you got back, did you return to BYU? And uh, so at that point, what were you studying in school? And what, what was it that drew you to that particular field of study? Sure. So in, in high school, I had this, you know, it's rural high school. And so in rural high schools, the, the quality of instruction can be fairly uneven. But we had this one professor, Mr. Beard. He actually lives out, out by Shaver Lake. Uh, Mr. Beard was uh, actually doing his Ph.D. at University of Oregon in economics. And I just loved how he pushed me. And it wasn't just that he pushed me, you know, in, in social science, which is what he taught, but he pushed me in math, he pushed me in my writing, he even had religious conversations with me. So I was thinking about economics. I played with economics a little bit my first year at, at BYU, but I didn't do very well that 110 class that is, other people who've taken it uh, probably can tell you horror stories. I actually did pretty poorly, and I actually went into the instructor, and I said to him, well, uh, I, I'm on track to get a B in your class, and I really want an A. And he just said, I'll tell you what, you ace my final, I'll give you an A. And he wrote me a letter home, and he said, you got your A, come and see me, we need to talk about the major this guy named Larry Wimmer. And so Larry got me thinking about it. And then I went to Brazil, and I was in Brazil during a period of hyperinflation. So the very first bus I took in Brazil was 50 cruzeiros. And I took that bus uh, towards the very end of my mission, and it was 50,000 cruzeiros. You know, And this is like you know 19 months, 17, 17, because I had to wait for my visa for a little bit. So you know, this is like I'd been in the country for about 19 months, and that's how much the inflation had gone. And so for me, that was fascinating. And so when I get, it went back to BYU, I had thought about some different majors, economics, political science, English. But um, And I have to be honest, English is probably the one I love the most. But economics was the one that kind of took advantage of some of the uh, mathematical skills I had. And also, given the experiences I had, it seemed very logical. And so I did my undergraduate there at BYU. And, and little did I know that BYU is actually a machine in placing students at top schools. So when I finished up at BYU, there was six of us uh, who ended up going to top five institutions. Uh, a couple went to Chicago, one to Princeton, a couple of us to MIT, and, and I was lucky enough to get into MIT. And that's where I did my, P- I didn't do a master's. I just went straight from bachelor's to a PhD. And I did that in four years then at MIT. So now at this point, where along the way did you and Suzanne meet? Were you both <laughs> at BYU together or was that well, subsequent to graduating? Or? We're eager this next year for the youth in our state to be able to go to this FSY, right, which is kind of the old EFY because we actually met in high school at EFY. Now, when she tells a story, she reminds people that I wrote letters to a bunch of young women after that event since I didn't have any in my stake. Uh, but I did write her a letter. We still have the letter today. She never wrote me back. But it was just kind of fun. I, we met um, at the beginning of my senior year, the beginning of her sophomore year. And then um, 
and then we, she never wrote me back, so we never really maintained contact. And then when I came back from my mission, there was a number of people I was hanging out with at BYU who had gone to high school with her. And so they all, they invited me to come up. They knew I was there for New Year's Eve. And so I came up with them to a New Year's Eve party and met her at the New Year's Eve party. And about eight months later, we really had realized that we had something special. And so I, I guess it was a year later that we I proposed and about eight months after that, that we were married. So. And so now we fast forward in time and you're a professor at Stanford. And so after your PhD was teaching just a really logical next step for you? Or what, what was it that kind of drew you towards teaching and what is it that you like the most about it at sure. this point? Well, so one of the things that I always enjoyed was a good instructor. And I always felt like, I really thought my career arc would be like going to MIT or going somewhere for my PhD and that I'd be at a teaching institution. But I also found that I really enjoyed the research. And I did some work on educational vouchers when my dissertation really was on educational vouchers, charter schools, these types of educational interventions that have some type of economic foundation in them. And got a job. The first job was at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, We were there for about eight years. So Rebecca, our oldest, was born when we were at MIT. But then the other four children that we have were all born in Cleveland. And then that was actually the Kirtland stake. So our stake center was you know, right at the base of the hill, uh, Kirtland Temple right up there above us. And so we lived there for about eight years. And then towards the end of that eight years, I wrote a paper where I demonstrated that what we did was we wrote a piece of software that could go in H&R Block offices. And what it would do was it would uh, detect whether or not the family would be eligible for like a Pell Grant aid if, the, if they had a child who was college age or if they themselves were college age, it would detect whether their finances were such that they could qualify for additional financial aid. And we did a randomized control trial where we offered to have this software basically fill out the FAFSA form. And if you know what the FAFSA form is, that free application for federal student aid, and it's a, just a the mother of all bad forms. I mean, it's like one of the worst ones in the world. I mean, there's so much extraneous information on this. It's very, very difficult. Uh, when I do FAFSAs for my kids, it takes me about an hour to do it, and I know what I'm doing. It, we were doing them in eight minutes with the software. And what was interesting was the population we were working on was a population that was very unlikely to go to college. Only about 25% of them were going to college. We got it up to about 35% just from this simple eight-minute intervention where we just helped them get financial support so that they could try to go to college. And it was such a big deal that I was quite excited in like the 2008 election, both McCain and Obama both put it on as their platforms. For higher education finance, we're going to simplify the FAFSA form and make it easier for people to fill. And in 2012, Romney and and Obama did the same thing. And so it was kind of this great thing because regardless of who won, the work that I was doing was going to become policy. But... You know, the, people think of higher education as be like teaching organizations, but especially at a place like Stanford, you should think of it more like venture capital. And because what they basically do is they want you know good products with their names on it. And so what they did was they saw this project, saw that it had real potential and that it was getting a lot of traction from in political circles. And so they came and made a job offer and offered to have me come uh, to Stanford so they could have their name on all that research. And, you know, part of it is you don't invest necessarily in the product, you invest in the person. 
and they had the other things that I was working on at the time were all projects that they thought would be high impact. And so that's where, the, so 2008 was when we took the job at Stanford and came out of here. I remember you're involved in admissions now. I, I have a high school senior who was just going through the college process and you had actually shared with me recently, I thought an interesting observation about how you think about admissions and how much it is about the school versus the people who come to the school and what they sort of make of it. I, I wonder if you might share that with people. Now yeah, you're having me put my academic hat on here. And um, there's this wonderful paper by uh, Gordon Winston. He died a few years ago. And Gordon had this great thing, like in a traditional economic model, what we think about is I open a factory, I put inputs, and then I produce something that comes out the other side. And building a computer, that's what happens, right? We take inputs and we assemble them in some ways and on the other side. And when you think about education, it's a little bit weird. Like we send children to school and you know we have inputs like a teacher, a textbook. And at the end of the day, what we produce is hopefully a learning outcome, right? But in colleges, one of the things that I think gets overlooked is some of the best learning you have is not from the teacher nor from the textbook, but from your peers. And your, it's your peers that oftentimes it's the question that they ask that gives you insight. It's the answer that they give to somebody else's question that helps you start to transcend from a place of not understanding or not knowing how to apply to a place where you really start to understand how to apply knowledge and use knowledge. And so one of the things that's interesting, if you think about from like an economic perspective, it's really weird because students are an input, but they're also the output. And so when you start to think about a place like uh, Stanford, you know, Stanford's a great place in that we have great ingredients, right? We have teachers, we have great, you know, kind of a syllabi and, and course plans, we have great resources, but I actually think a lot of the magic that happens at Stanford is not there. It's when the students get together and start to sharing their experience and learning from each other. I sometimes like to take my academic world and try to map it onto, and you read Doctrine and Covenant section 50, this is essentially what they say our Sunday school classes, right, should be, that if the Spirit's there, that the teacher should be able to teach by the Spirit and the learner should be able to learn by the Spirit, and both of them should be edified. And while we don't necessarily use those terms at Stanford, there's an element when I come prepared to teach a subject and when the students come prepared to learn and they're willing to share their experiences that we get edified together. I'd love to get more theological in, in the process of that learning, but at the same time, it's, it's a principle. And there's many principles that even if you're not in a church setting, still give benefits, including learning from each other and being edified together and both of you coming out of an experience having learned more as a result of the preparation effort and uh, humility with which you approach the learning process. Clearly you're a smart guy. You have a lot of formal education and that's even kind of continued now into being a professor in an institution like Stanford. Has that ever been a challenge for you in terms of reconciling the sort of intellectual side of you, if you will, with the spiritual side? And how have you kind of gone about doing that? Well, I think one of the early scriptures that just resonated with me was to be learned is good if you hearken unto the counsels of God. And when I was a kid, you and my parents' divorce was starting to go downhill. My, my dad was 
spending a lot of time researching, you know, these arcane topics. And, um, you know, there's, they're important topics, I guess, but there were these topics that weren't, he was so far removed from faith, repentance, you know, renewal of his covenants, uh, gift of the Holy Ghost. And while it was still gospel related, he was spending all of his time over there. And I think that one of the things that as I watched him fall away from the church, there was a certain element where he just lost the basic principles. Growing up in that setting and starting to be interjected into this kind of intellectual environment, you know, I had two things that kept on weighing my mind. To be learning is good if you hearken to the counsels of God. And watching my dad focus so much on the periphery items of the church that he lost track of the role of the atonement in his life. And so one of the things that I started trying to spend a lot of time, I said, well, you know, the first principles, they're the foundational things. And, you know, I started going through, like, in the Book of Mormon, if you look at almost every prophet when they're, you know, saying their goodbyes, their last advice to their kids are basically faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. And so I decided that I'd make those the core of my study. And yeah, I've studied some other topics that I think are interesting. And sometimes, you know, I don't understand everything. But by making it the core, then even when I confront something that I don't understand, I've got such a strong testimony of Christ as my Savior. I've got such a strong testimony that the gospel was restored through Joseph Smith that I find myself, I can rely on those experiences when I don't understand some of the other things. There's a lot I don't understand. There's a lot about Joseph Smith's life, and I still don't understand. I probably won't. Um, but what I can say is that he was involved in the restoration of God's church, that he was a prophet. And so I've in part because in that core doctrines that I've had, I've been able to kind of keep that. I think we had a little bit like a, a big tree, right? The atonement of Christ is that trunk of that tree. And as you move up that tree, you start to get, you have strong branches and you have weak branches. And some of the, I've never ventured out and tried to just dangle on those, the weakest part of the branch. I've always tried to stay close to that trunk of the tree or just right on those strong branches and made that the kind of core of my gospel learning. Maybe just one last question here is that as you think about your own life and your own family and, and potentially other posterity down the line, are there certain principles or things that you've found to be important that you've tried to convey to them as they've been growing up or as they've been kind of going through life, whether they be gospel sure. related or otherwise? I think, uh, you know, in some sense we've, we've almost covered it and I'll just kind of recap because I think that if I had to give my deathbed, here's what you need to worry about as you go forward, it would be the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Because I think that every time that I've made mistakes or that I've really been questioning where I'm at, as I've been able to anchor my faith and to repent and to renew my covenants, it has given me energy and strength. I think on top of that, you know, we talked a little bit earlier in, about how it, when I was a kid, it resonates so much this idea of being a peacemaker. One of the things that's hard as you get older is, you know, human relationships are hard. A single wrong word can undo years of uh, trust that you've tried to earn and build and strengthen. And that ability to forgive and to be a peacemaker, even in those tough times, 
I think it pays dividends in life because you start to recognize some of the, the things that you carried for a long time because you didn't have that. And you also start to realize and be more forgiving. And, and, and I think you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier that as you do forgive other people, you start to recognize the need for somebody to forgive you. You know, the, in my office at church, I have a painting on the wall, which is when my oldest daughter served in Russia. And so we went to the Hermitage, and there were a, one big wall, it's an enormous painting, is Rembrandt's study of the prodigal son. And I sat there for maybe a half hour just staring at that painting, just because, you know, Rembrandt was an interesting guy. In the early part of his life, he did a, another study of the prodigal son, and he did a picture of the son out partying. <laughs> and then as his life went on, and as the bumps and bruises of life um, came and went, at the end of his life, he drew the one of the prodigal son returning. And... You know, I don't know enough about Rembrandt's life to know if that was the arc of his life, but I find it interesting that the one that was most meaningful for him late in life was of somebody forgiving the prodigal son for his uh, trespasses. So, you know, what what are the principles I'd love my kids to know? First principle, ordinance of the gospel, and then if I had to say one other thing, it would be the capacity to be a peacemaker, to forgive, and to love other people despite the injuries they cause. Give them a mulligan. You have to still protect yourself from harm, but at the same time, there's a strong capacity of all of us to forgive others. I think that's a wonderful place for us to end today. So Eric, thank you uh, so much for being a part of this and for all of your service within our stake. And while you're not within our ward boundaries, we do consider you a member of our ward family. So hopefully people will use this as an opportunity to just get to know you better and whether they need to come meet with you for any number of reasons. It's a nice guy, <laughs> super approachable. I can attest to that, but otherwise just a really great resource to our stake. So thank you.